0: Who the Wild Things Are with Ryan McGuire. You gotta listen to your body. Oh my God, maybe, you know, I could get out there. I could do this. Let's take a ride, find your wild side. Real stories, see with your own eyes. It's so beautiful. I'm gonna have the best time out here. I was in tears, Like that's the
1: best, man. Welcome back to Who the Wild Things Are. My name is Ryan McGuire, and I'm here to bring you conversations with the most wild folks on the planet. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave us a rating and review on your podcast platform of choice. And if you enjoy the episode, share it with a friend. Appreciate you guys. Let's get it going. What's going on guys. Today's episode is brought to you by the fine folks at blokes blokes is a men's health company that specializes in hormone health weight loss sexual health longevity all those sorts of things where you feel like something might be a little bit off blokes is here to help they provide labs and blood work they can help you test your testosterone levels or different biomarkers so that you can be at your best and show up as the ultimate version of yourself. They provide one-on-one health coaching and the ability to meet with a board certified doctor in order to correct those things that might be going wrong in your body. If you wanna get some blood work done, get your labs done, go ahead and go to blokes.co or check the show notes for more info. Once again, that's blokes.co, also get blokes on Instagram. Thank you guys so much. Let's do the show. Sweet. Well, we're live. Jason, thanks for uh, for joining and uh, making your way out here.
0: I'm excited to be here, Ryan. <laughs> yeah.
1: So obviously you just finished a massive effort, but I wanted to kind of start with a question, which is, did six-year-old Jason know that he was going to be conquering a mission like this and that he was going to be sitting here today?
0: Man, I mean, that's... That's really the question there, like, did he know or like how much would he love it if I could go back in time and let him know how it all works out? Um, You know, little kid Jason, like he was hopelessly lost to his ADHD, struggled to hold together friendship, struggled in school, struggled to not mess things up for the family at church and with other, you know, family to family relationships because of his impulsiveness. So just constantly had this like repeating soundtrack of failing in relationships failing in school settings failing Mm -hmm. in social settings with the family um causing problems for the family and to have the very thing that caused him problems inability to sit still inability to just like toe the line of society and do the right thing at the right right time to have that turn into the superpower that helps him Nonstop move through wild adventures, and to be able to see those wild adventures and go, ooh, this this would be rad. This will have meaning to people. Um, to be able to go back and communicate that to him, I I think it's something he would love to hear. I think he knew. I think he knew he was going to find some way to keep moving his body and to keep finding meaning through pursuing physical challenge. But to know that it would go this far mm. and that it would end up mattering to other people and be his way of communicating good into the world and communicating inspiration and building a positive identity that's of use to himself and to others. Um, It'd be cool to be able to go back in time. And I mean, in a way it's like, right, I get to do that. I'm a school teacher. So it's like I'm an elementary PE teacher. I get to meet the little versions of me at six and eight years old and go, Hey, I remember what this was like, right? I can see it because I know what it was like to be inside that ADHD mindset where you do the wrong thing and you know, you messed up right after you did the wrong thing, which is kind of like telltale ADHD, the impulse goes first, Mm -hmm. and then you're able to catch up with the thinking. And so it's like, I can see that in a kid that goes and messes up a situation, and then you can immediately see they feel bad after the situation. It's like, ah, yeah. How do you handle
1: that with having your unique position, like understanding that at such a deep level, how do you treat those kids differently than maybe uh, a teacher that didn't have those struggles?
0: Um, I mean, it's a mixture of compassion and firmness. Um, it's like, you know, I can't enable the behavior. Mm -hmm. You know, I can't come across in such a way that they feel like they have a cop out for like needing to learn to own their behavior. But at the same time, there's a, a compassion for like, yeah, I understand what you've been living inside of like Mm -hmm. that this stuff seems to almost be happening to you rather than you having a chance to have that agency to to stop doing the, the yeah. wrong things or to do the right thing in the right moment. Um, and it feels like you have so little control inside your mind right now um, until that prefrontal cortex develops more. Like, it'll be hard, it'll be difficult, but don't give up, don't take on the I don't care, protective facade. Mm. Um, you know, that to me is like something I immediately Notice, Because I remember as a kid struggling with it myself, like to just be like, well, I keep messing up anyways. I'll never meet up to anyone else's standards, so I don't care anymore. Mm-hmm. Like I very much remember periods of my life where I wanted to put that that fake armor on so that I wouldn't have to feel like I felt every time I kept messing things up. Yeah. But it felt very, I don't know why, at such a young age, it felt important to stay vulnerable and to stay real and to stay honest and just like own that I, I was the one that kept messing stuff up, but I think it, it made all the difference in me turning into a man who could put himself together um, and own, own the decisions that I was making, and then eventually reach a place where I could function in society um, and take on a role that is of good to you know, young people who are trying to figure out their lives and others around me. Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah, I'd say, I mean, that kind of answered your question of how I might handle it. There's a sense of understanding, a sense of compassion for the situation because yeah. I can remember what that, what that was like as a kid. But I mean, still as a male role model for them, like that firmness and that discipline and that you have to keep trying to take ownership of this. You have to keep trying to figure this out. You can't just blame it on someone else or blame it on your mind or blame mm-hmm. it on um, some situation because then you won't keep working toward being better
1: yeah you've got kind of that victim complex at that point do you think that this like kind of adhd issue is becoming more prevalent you hear a lot about people talking about like shortening attention spans and uh different environmental factors affecting it but i wonder you know if there's any trend of it happening more now
0: um i mean it's shorter attention spans and the full complex of behaviors that are associated with adhd um are a bit different they express a bit different it's like mm. do kids have shorter attention spans across the grade levels do adults have shorter attention spans um and you know the social media era it's like yeah i've even in the time i've been alive right where I can just remember as as a 34 year old. I can just remember a time prior to like social media being a permeating part of our life and the internet being a permeating part of our life. I can just barely remember back that far, Um, and you know now, yeah. So it's just enough of a drift that I can see. I can see some of those differences, Mm -hmm. and yeah, there's definitely still a distinct difference between a a kid that has a clinical. ADHD and just shortened attention spans in the general population. um, They express differently.
1: Sure. With you being a teacher, I mean, there's certainly, it's very clear to me, there's this calling that you want to impact children's lives because you struggled at that age, but being a teacher also has this convenient thing where it allows you to take multiple months off during the summer. So when you were entering that part of your life and like, okay, I'm going down the teacher route. Did you know I'm going to do crazy adventures every summer? Or did you kind of fall into that?
0: Um, No, it was a big part. It was a big part of the decision. Basically, uh, you know, we can all remember high school where they had to sit down and do that like self questionnaire to be like, you know, to answer the question of what careers might you be uh, have dispositions that are you'd be qualified for. And, you know, we sat down and hoped for one that had lots of money associated with it. Because we were young and didn't have any other metric to assess by but i remember i i actually was pretty good at math in high school i made it through the highest level math at my school which was pre-calculus and did okay for myself in in that domain even though i couldn't really focus i could like sit there and just watch as the teacher taught it and i would like ask a bunch of questions and be really focused in class in that regard mm-hmm. and then not be able to focus on the homework and not get it done but i mastered it enough while sitting in class or i'd go in at lunchtime and ask more questions um, and so i was able to kind of master math without doing hardly any homework um just by kind of really tuning in in class and kind of being obsessed with it while i was there and then being able to move on when i was out because you know homework was always a weakness mm-hmm. so yeah i thought oh aerospace engineer like i'm gonna send rockets into space and do this cool stuff and you know it was like a very romanticized idea in my head to be like a part of like space program or build planes or something like that Hmm. um but then i took a a long hard look at the uh sit 14 hours at a desk and i'm like oh that's not me that'll wreck me i'll be like yeah i'll lose my mind i'll be like depressed or bitter like oh that sounds terrible and so i'd already like observed in myself and had others observe in myself that i had this sort of innate teacher wiring um, you know, I was the kind of kid that instead of, you know, even at first grade, my mom tells this story, even in first grade, um, I wasn't the kind of kid that when there was a kid who was scared to catch a football that I'd make fun of him like the other kids, I would be the one that would like step and pull him aside and be like, okay, like, we're gonna stand super close. And I'm gonna throw it super soft, like, we're gonna toss it back more. Okay, we'll scoot back a little bit further. We'll toss yeah. it back forth. And then pretty soon, I have a new buddy to play catch with. Like, even at that age, that was how I was wired to operate in situations like that where I had something that it's like, wait, I can offer this. I know how to do this. I can offer this to you. Mm. Um, and so it was already, I already knew, I was already self-aware enough, um, you know, even at 18 years old, that it's like, okay, this is something clearly is an option I should consider. And I already knew I loved, I was just kind of a student of my sport with running mm. at that age, like, it was very personal to me i was like one of the only people in my high school that trained year round for my sport and my sport was running so you know everybody's like you're crazy you're like running in the winter to prepare for track um and so i already knew like it was going to be i was very passionate about like physical pursuit and fitness and i was Mm -hmm. already doing things like adjusting my diet to perform better as a high school athlete um so it was like okay like this is something i'm passionate about and something i i would love to teach um and so as soon as I was like, yeah, aerospace engineer, throw that in the trash can. It's like, all right, PE teacher. Yeah. Um, it was the. It was like, okay, you get to move all day, you get to play all day, you get to teach the stuff you're passionate about. And I mean, I even guided my decision making around health and fitness to a degree that a mentor who I cared a great deal about, my my high school principal. He's one of those principals that you walk in on the first day, and it's like a school of 650 students, and he's like, oh, Mr. Hardrath, nice to see you here today. Yeah. It's like how does this guy know me? Um, he would memorize every student before they walked through his doors wow. um, just by studying the middle school yearbooks. Hmm. Um, and so he's just this incredible mentor and role model. And he's like, you should pick up a second endorsement so that you can be sure to get a job. That would be smart to do. And I wrestled because I like respected the guy so much. And I was like, yeah, but in my shadowing, I heard lots of teachers talk about how they got into teaching to teach this, you know, fill in the blank with a subject they truly loved. Mm -hmm. But they had a second endorsement. And then as the story would go, they go, and now that's all I teach.
1: What do you mean a second endorsement? I'm not familiar with that. Uh, So
0: basically to be a teacher, you get endorsed in a specific subject area, Mm. um, which means that's what your certification. So like an English teacher teaches English, a math teacher teaches math. They have separate endorsements. Mm. Um, and so a lot of times teachers to be sure they get a job will do, you know, take extra courses so that they're certified in both math and English or science and math. Gotcha. So it just like adds to your value on a school faculty to be sure you can land a job. And I stared down the barrel at that gun and I was like, do I want to end up teaching something I'm not passionate about? I was like, no, it's more important to me to teach what I actually care about than yeah. to be sure I get the job. Mm. And so I chose not to get a second endorsement. So just so that could never happen to me where I'm like, oh, now all I teach is English. And what I care about is health and PE. Mm. Um, so I chose, chose to, to go the direction of like only enabling myself to chase what I love. Um, and that's kind of been a, a way I've guided a lot of decisions in my life. And I think it's served me pretty well.
1: Yeah, that seems like a lot of wisdom there in that because you went away from the safer route in order to kind of pigeonhole yourself into what you were passionate about, which I don't know that I would have had that wisdom at that time in my life. uh, that's pretty remarkable.
0: Yeah, sometimes I look back at at younger me and I'm like, nice job, dude.
1: (laughs) It is interesting to think about like... modern modern high school and modern schooling, I don't know if you've ever, like, studied Stoics or old Greeks or uh, even Romans, there's, like, this typical arc to, like, the male's life, Um, you know, you're a kid, and you're kind of running around, and then you become, like, a teenager and young adult, and you go off to war, and you become a warrior, and then Uh, You become a senator, you know, you start your body starts slowing down and then eventually a philosopher where you're just sitting down, you know, 10 hours a day and writing and working through all these difficult problems. But it seems like we've just like pushed that younger and younger into folks uh, lives where now they're tasked with sitting down and writing and thinking all day when they should be um, in a more natural sense out running around and being a warrior being a, a messenger running through the mountains things like pursuing
0: that. And, and conquering and exploring yes yeah.
1: exactly and you're like pigeonholing them into just sitting in a desk and it's like they got plenty of time to do that in their old age they don't necessarily need to be doing that right now
0: like, yeah yeah I mean the school setting is especially for for young males statistically a, a setting that they very much struggle to thrive in with all the sitting and the you know lack of engagement in, in the physical sense mm-hmm. um you know which makes me you know really happy to be a part of uh you know elementary program um where every kid gets you know 30 minutes of pe time and we also make sure they get 30 minutes at lunch and a 15 minute recess at each end of the day so it's like making sure that there is movement time built mm-hmm. in um you know schools that don't even have a dedicated you know pe program it's crazy to me um yeah. it's no wonder that there are behavior problems and and problems with dropping out and problems with uh lack of focus and uh, yeah just all those sorts all of that stuff because yeah i agree we, the statistics say that's not what we're wired to do um i do enjoy living as a part of an educated society though um so i will say there's something to educating our young to a higher degree yeah um but definitely there's definitely some reworking of the system that could make it a little more balanced. Yeah. So
1: So once you've kind of settled into your teaching career, you've done a lot of um, big challenges, but specifically the one I want to dive into is the one you just finished. Congratulations, by the way. Thank you. Um, The Rocky Mountain Grand Slam. Give us just a little bit of context into what the Grand Slam is and then where the hell the idea came from.
0: (laughs) Perfect. Um, Let's see here. Maybe I'll, I'll, I'll start off with the context of where it came from and then roll into specifically what it is. So uh, back in 2021, I was finishing up my journey to 100 FKTs, um, FKTs, fastest known times for those who haven't heard that. It's basically a speed record uh, most often on trails or in the mountain or in the backcountry where you can't host a race because you could never get a permit for an event there or it's too dangerous to reasonably like ask normal human beings to go out and uh, traverse that terrain. But, you know, people with certain skill sets are, are able to, to move efficiently through it. Um, and yeah, I got very into pursuing those. And as my, my 100th FKT, I got this crazy idea of chasing the 100 tallest peaks of the state of Washington. And so I started doing this deep research on how to access these peaks and the most efficient link ups and calling up various mountaineers and like talking through route choices. And during that process, uh, one of the guys I talked to had just done the Rocky Mountain Grand Slam, and so that planted the the seed in my mind. Like, oh, this is this is the next big project, the next month mm. plus project of chasing mountain peaks and getting this grand tour of beautiful terrain that I love moving through. Um, and so the seed was planted back in 2021, and that's kind of when the the initial map building and research and logistical. Um, considerations, I started to like put that together. Um, so it's been a couple years in coming as far as like the, the preparation and the planning and the awareness of what I was going to go do. Um, I took a kind of a year off after the, the bulgers cause that was a 50 day push and, um, you know, pushing that hard and long kind of takes a toll on the body. And so I was like, okay, I'll do a year where I chase some shorter records in California. And I did the California 14ers human powered record, which is a week long push where you, all human powered connect the 15 ers of the state of California. Hmm. Um, so it's about like just shy of 500 miles of biking and, um, another 130 on foot. Okay. Um, so kind of a, Casual. kind of a big endeavor, but not, not to the same scale of pushing for a month. And so then this year rolled around and it's like, okay, if I'm going to do this, like, this is the year, now's the time. And a lot of people are like, oh, you should wait. The snow year, it's a really bad snow year. It's going to be slow moving. You're going to struggle. It's like, yeah, but I have the motivation. I have the plan. And you never know. I mean, one of the things of my backstory, it's a part of the Journey to 100 film that kind of documents documents that that initial journey to 100 FKTs I talked about. One of the storylines within that is how in 2015 I got ejected from a vehicle in a rollover accident. Um, And... Shredded my ACL and LCL in my right knee, had to have them surgically replaced. Um, broke my shoulder in two places, broke nine ribs, collapsed a lung, and put a lot of contusions and scar tissue through my internal organs. Um, was really lucky. I mean, right? You get ejected from the heat from a car in a rollover accident, and statistically, you usually end up passing away. Um, so, got a got a second lease on life, and had to had to sort of rebuild from the bottom up. Um, and that's what kind of launched me into the mountains at that point. But
1: How long was that recovery process
0: uh, over two years a bit over two years i mean i I started leaning into keeping my fitness way sooner than any doctor would have recommended i mean my ribs were still uh crackling with each pull when i started getting in the pool to swim um basically a week after they let me out of the hospital because it's like well you got to breathe anyways so those bones are moving and they're going to heal statistically they're going to heal regardless of what you do it'll just hurt and I'm like, well, I'm good at dealing with pain, so let's go swim. Keep some kind of cardio fitness. Um, so I started swimming actually more than I had. I was very into Ironman prior to the car accident. And so I started swimming more miles than I had in my Ironman training previous because it's like, well, this is what I do now, mm. even though it's my least favorite discipline. Yeah. Um, so just immediately started leaning into doing whatever I could and asking myself the question like, well, what can I do? What can I do to keep keep myself fit and keep moving toward my goal and to speed my recovery um and yeah it took about two years to get back to where I could trust the the I mean even to this day I'm not as fast as I was due to the scar tissue in my lungs um prior to the accident not that I was that fast before I mean I ran like a 250 marathon um which you know is reasonable but nowhere near elite um but yeah my the whole mission I set for myself was I'm not going to stop until I get back to some version of what I love. And I knew I loved chasing these like grand physical endeavors, these pursuits that were deep testing challenges. Mm. And so it's like, I'm going to find some way back to that. I'm not just going to like settle into, well, I'll run the local 5k every once in a while. Um, it's like, that's, that's not how I'm wired. That's not how I care to express myself in, in this world. Um, it's, it's almost reached a place where I guess this is the medium I paint with, right? It's like this is my art to, to pursue physical challenges, to find creative ways to, to move across the land, to link together different skill sets. Um, yeah, and it's like I knew I loved expressing myself that way. And, you know, one of the first doctors I had was like, oh, that part of your life, you're just going to let it go. And it's like mm. at first it was like the sinking moment. And then that spirit of defiance kicked on. It's yeah. like, you don't know me. You don't know how hard watch. I'm willing to work. You watch. Exactly. And so yeah, I had to, had to make good on that sensation and just lean into the, the recovery process hard. And you know, it was this element of like reclaiming personal power, that locus of control, that, mm. that sense that it's like, I can steer my life how I see fit. I can, I can get this body to, to yield to my mind and to, and to do what I want it to do again. Hmm. Um, and I think early on, if you look at, again, that, that journey to 100 different uh, speed records, a lot of them early on were solo, self-supported, solo, unsupported, because it was, it was me with me. It was, that was what it was about, that, you know, you know, that warrior spirit. Like, I'm going to go out there and test myself. And I almost don't want anyone else to be around. I just I want this to be about what I can trust myself to go do. And you could almost call it a character arc. Now, after having done so many iterations of that, I almost always want to invite others and share adventure with others, and especially younger athletes or less experienced athletes where I can, like, unlock something new for them Mm. because they're willing to come along if I'm there, but they wouldn't necessarily be ready to trust themselves yet and being able to kind of... Help unlock a new level of self-belief or a new process for them to continue on to bigger things on their own. Um, it's, it's like I'm way more about that now than I than I am about being out on another solo um, solo gauntlet, a uh, vision quest. Although I think at times in life, vision quests and revisiting them are are important to have um, throughout all seasons of life, so you don't lose your sense of place and your orientation. But I think, yeah, now it seems that I'm very interested in supported type, type efforts where I can invite others yeah. to share in it with me.
1: Kind of like that mentorship role. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that was actually how we got connected at first was Eric uh, was like, hey, this guy's doing a big adventure looking for crew. And that was you know how we connected at first. So I can attest to the fact that, um, <clears throat> and I think anybody who follows this, you did a really nice job of organizing a really uh, capable but also um, prob- likely less experienced crew that probably got a lot of benefit as they got to join you on this grand adventure. So that's kind of cool. I didn't really think about the mentorship role that something like this could provide.
0: Yeah, one of the guys who joined was uh, 21, and he had a, has a ton of talent. He was a sub-15 high school 5k runner right that's that's real talent i never ran a sub 15 I'd, even in college i was nowhere near it um and he'd kind of fallen out of keeping his fitness up in his because he decided he didn't want to run in college like college isn't for me um but then that meant he wasn't on a team or being coached anymore and so kind of fell out of utilization and the habit of running and he was really interested in this fkt world this fastest known time world and like running in the mountains and getting back into sort of trail racing and all that and so being able to invite him to be a part of this and him to see like what's possible and the logistics that go into it um you know he even wrote me it was that it was really transformative and an amazing experience for him um another guy was like super experienced to the degree that it almost made me self-conscious he actually holds the pacific crest trail uh, self-supported records so like you know one of the big boy name brand like everybody knows it records um the Pacific Crest Trail so to have him like jump on halfway through because he was in the area and be like dude I'll help support you was like whoa whoa really <laughs> you're gonna support me That's amazing. um and it was I mean you know they, that that saying where you know if you want to take over the world you don't need a thousand men you just need three badass <laughs> Joey Diaz <laughs> um he's one of those guys where yeah. he did the work of like four other support crews sometimes where he's right. like yeah I'll do that 15 mile resupply and then the next day I'll do that 20 mile resupply um no biggie yeah. I'll, I'll carry that weight for those miles and it's just whatever and you, you know to him it was just like a casual decision right because to him normal is 50 miles a day for 50 days mm. um so doing doing a 30 mile day backed with another 30 mile day is like an easy day while carrying your w- yeah while, while carrying some extra weight some yeah. food weight in so that i could like pick it up from him at the trail and then carry it up a few more peaks so that i didn't have to carry that weight for the previous peaks um like it was huge right game changer yeah um like those kind of people and being able to have those kind of people willing to be on your team and on your team is just you know i would say he single-handedly helped the record be at least three days faster with wow. with his contribution.
1: Um, That's crazy how much crew can make a difference, especially like on a big effort like this. Like, I guess you wouldn't know unless you've, you've been in that situation, but the difference that certain individuals can make on the overall time is it's staggering.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, no, it's, uh, you yeah, know, those, those quotes, like the one I mentioned, yeah, it's, it's not just, made up. It's for real. In situations where you're digging deep and you're going to war and you're going to have to, you know, go to the bottom of the well and then make the well deeper, like having those right people around you absolutely alters the outcome.
1: Absolutely. So tell me, or um, I guess just tell folks a little bit about the, the actual mission itself, the, yeah, what it entails. And then Talk to me a little bit about like the logistics. How did you handle the planning for all these different peaks and all these different states, all these different coordination between individuals crewing you? How did that all play out?
0: Uh, So first things first, the Rocky mountain grand slam is a combination of three individual state peak lists. It's the Colorado 14ers list that everybody knows about. Like that's famous the Wyoming 13ers list, which is, you know, there's 58 Colorado 14ers, and there's only 37 Wyoming 13ers. But the thing that's a big difference is Colorado, you're basically getting back to the support van every single night. Yeah. There, Even when you do the big link ups, you usually, if you're moving fast, moving efficiently, you can knock out those five or six peaks and be back at the car. Um, you don't have to carry camp into the backcountry. First thing going into Wyoming, the Wind River Range, you have thirty-two peaks all in the backcountry with a seventeen-mile in, seventeen-mile out entry and exit. So it's like you're going to go in and try to bat a thousand for thirty-two peaks in a row, so that you don't have to go resupply by adding basically you know a thirty-four-mile ultra marathon onto your effort. Wow. Um, so like, there's different levels of seriousness, and so I chose to start with Colorado. For that reason, because it would that way it would sort of feel like the playful warm up. Yeah. Like, even though the peaks are taller, it's like knowing that it's like, yeah, I'll be back at the van tonight. Yeah. Like, took a little of the seriousness out and kind of let my mind and body get in a rhythm. And then Wyoming, and then you close out the way I did it going south to north, you close out with the uh, Montana 12ers, yeah. the 12,000 foot peaks there in Montana, which are all in the tooths. It's a 103 mile continuous push linking up 27 of those peaks. Um, so again, like a very, like a much more serious endeavor where you're in it and you're staying in it. And the only contact you're going to have are the resupplies that people bring you at different points. Um, and so yeah, you add those up the 58, 37, 27, you end up with 122 peaks. Um, I kind of thought the high water mark when I was doing my research and planning, um, for me was going to be around the 40 day mark. So I set that as like the A goal. Um, I thought like, okay, weather, it's a bad snow year, maybe it's reasonable to aim for 45 because of the snow year and all that. And, you know, I'm taking a lot of gambles with, you know, when I did the bulgers, I had support crew that were like in it from the beginning that ar- I already knew one of them was my girlfriend at the time, Ashley Winchester. Um, one of them was Nathan Longhurst. We'd only just met at the start of the effort, but quickly like hit it off. And he stayed with me for 65 of those hundred peaks. Wow. Um, So I had like these dedicated people like in it it to win it the whole time. Um, And with this one, I knew I was coming in and it was like gonna be, you know, this person from this day to this day and that person from this day to this day and not a real strong relationship there because I'd kind of reached out through friends of friends and through Mm -hmm. social media channels to kind of fill up some of these time slots to have support so that I wouldn't have to simultaneously climb the mountains and then try to drive while sleep deprived to the next group, which gets really dangerous really fast. Um, you know, you can do it like I did a self-supported effort, uh, called, uh, the cascade trifecta. It was one of sort of my first bigger endeavors back in 2019. Um, and I did it all solo self-supported and basically it's Rainier Adams and hood all in a single push and mm. um, the goal is to try to do it under 24 hours and it's like you know that's one thing where you can do it reasonably safe solo like you're a little tired on your final drive but not so much that you're worried about like not staying awake on the road when you start to stretch stuff out over multiple days of sleep deprivation and fatigue it's like at some point you go yeah i'm not just endangering myself anymore it's not a decision like i'm going to take a risk in the mountain to be out there solo. It's like, now I'm putting others on the road at risk if I fall asleep at the wheel. And that to me is a different ethical question and decision. Um, so it felt, it felt more right as well as safer and then just faster for the endeavor, um, to have a support group to aim at supported. And then also that allowed me to invite whoever to come be a part and to come climb one peak with me, Mm -hmm. um, and kind of opened that invitation for, for sharing it with different people along the way.
1: So hopping into the effort itself, you're starting here in Colorado, the biggest peaks, but like you said, probably the best access of all of them. Um, But there are a couple, I guess um, some folks might not know this. They think 14ers are all pretty straightforward. There are some that contain a little bit more technical know-how. Talk me through your study and research how did you did you kind of lean on other people who had done things like capital peak and uh kind of ask them questions or had you done a lot of the more technical ones prior to this
0: so out of the 122 peaks i had climbed two of them previous 120 on sites whoa um so i leaned into which is just my same process went into the bulgers list in washington i leaned into people who had done the key link ups i i Obviously, here in uh, Colorado, Andrew Hamilton Mm. and Andrea, um, they were huge, right? They helped me a ton with peak order and which link-ups were more efficient. Um, I wanted to do the big four uh, traverses as a a part of this effort. Um, It's more efficient, and they're kind of the technical traverses, Um, You know, like the Bells Traverse, the Crestone Traverse, um, Wilson to El Dente. Um, I'm going to space on the last one. What is it? oh someone's gonna have to be pyramid uh pyramid is in the bells oh Um, yeah it'll it'll come to me in a minute but those big four traverses are kind of some of the more technical ones and yeah no those like from my place of being where i've spent a ton of time like i mentioned those 100 fkts i pursued most of those a, a large body of those were like especially early on in my early, my, well, in the end of my twenties, I was still pursuing like run plus free solo. So like full on, I'm going to solo five, six, for 1500 feet yeah. was one of those. Um, <clears throat> and so I've built this deep skill set um, on technical terrain. And so when I look at a- Somebody Alpine,
1: that isn't a climber real quick, tell them what you just said, soloing five, six, 1500 feet, what does that mean?
0: Um, so if you're on a, so, I mean, in the Alpine, you know, there's these rankings and in rock climbing, there's these rankings. Uh, fifth class is where basically you have to use your hands and your feet to make momentum upwards. It involves decision-making and body positions. Um, so it's like, you can think of it as like real rock climbing, climbing. um, it might be easy rock climbing, um, once you're in fifth class, but it's serious. It's consequential. Like if you mess up, you're likely going to fall and end up in the hospital or worse. Um, and I've spent a ton of time working on my ability to move through easy, moderate fifth class terrain. So not the like super hard stuff that you see like the pro climbers climbing, um, but just kind of the, the easier stuff, but it's still quite vertical and you still have to sort of problem solve your movements and know the different body positions you're able to get into like reach a little further or to you know get your foot up high enough um, to solve the problem and continue moving. And so, these traverses, rather than being 1500 feet of sustained movement like that, oftentimes just hold sections that it's like, there's no easy way through this. You have to do this 20 foot section of real climbing. Got to kind of snap your head in with the exposure, focus in and make the movements and get through. And so for me, there was nothing here in Colorado from my perspective that I worried about really in in this entire project, um, I kind of knew all of it was within that uh, skill set of mine that I've developed over the years. And that's why I would choose a project like this on the, to begin with. If it was constantly pushing the edges of a skill set, um, like if there, you know, obviously if there had been a few peaks that I needed a rope on, I just would use the rope. And I did end up bringing a rope out in the winds because there was one peak that I kind of questioned from the descriptions and, um, what is it called now? Spearhead. Mm -hmm. Um, spearhead peak back there had a description of, uh, people saying between five, four and five, seven highly exposed. Mm -hmm. And my rules for myself, even when I was at the the peak of my soloing focus was, uh, my, my rule was I need to be able to take basically a no hands rest, or if I wanted to take a no hands rest for 90% of of the route. If there's Mm. exposure, there can be like a couple of moves where it's like, Ooh, you wouldn't be able to take a rest until you made those two moves, but then you're back onto easier terrain. Mm -hmm. Um, so even, even when I was at the peak, like that's been a rule. And so I knew I wasn't going to break that rule for myself. If it seemed like, Oh, this is too sustained, too vertical for too long. Um, I was going to put protection and, and, and climate with a a safety in place. I ended up flying right through it and, and finding it to be quite enjoyable and quite fun. That's Um, but it's like, oh I need to show up prepared. So right again, it was like thirty two so peaks back. Did you hike thousand. up with the
1: trad gear then?
0: Yeah, we took we took a really small rack. Oh okay. Um, Josh Josh Perry and I took a small rack back in there. Um, extremely extremely cut down. Just like the few the few pieces that we heard that people had put in Um, here or there it's like all right what's the minimum that would be safe because it's heavy track gear is heavy. heavy
1: dude it's heavy especially on a big backcountry push like that where you can't just like leave it in the car like whatever you bring like you have to take it with you until your next resupply
0: have to haul it around yeah so um yeah i mean obviously i took took precautions and had a rope for the glacier travel sections there in the winds um but yeah yeah so colorado i kind of mentally new having done deep research because part of my process is the first one of the first things i do in the process after i like compile all of the options of routes and access Mm -hmm. is i go through my principal hazards like what is the hardest thing i'm going to run into where is it located how sustained is it what are the various opinions on it and when i did my deep dive on colorado you know even those traverses i'm like that's in the that's in the fun zone for me yeah like that that's That's exactly what I love playing on. Um, So I kind of, I wasn't too worried leading into it. It's like, obviously, yeah, I'm gonna have to have my head in, like it's serious terrain, so there's a mindset and an approach to that. Um, I mean, obviously, the community's been kind of confronted with that recently with Mm -hmm. the kind of series of uh, deaths soloing recently. And I mean, not to get on a soapbox, but I definitely have strong opinions about that. Like, obviously I'm someone who, I found something for myself within the art and pursuit of soloing like it, it almost the way I would describe it that 1500 foot route um, is solar slab in red rocks and you know it's like one of the best known easy moderates in the country one of the tallest easy moderates in the country it's five six almost the whole way um, and I climbed it the first time on a rope which there's a key right there right like I climbed it the first time on a rope um, which tells you the process you should follow like with these things, like you're always going out and checking first. And mm-hmm. we have these people who increasingly are getting found by search and rescue having climbed up something they hardly did research on mm-hmm. and they never climbed before. Right. And you know they climb it maybe successfully or are trapped halfway up it, um, but they didn't bring a rope for the descent and it was a mandatory rappel dis- descent. Um, it's like, you can't do that. Like you have to deeply know, first and foremost, you have to deeply know what you're going to go get out on, Mm -hmm. you know, just like throw yourself into it without any, any research on the front end. It's Um, been
1: a lot of people talking about the flat irons here. I'm mm -hmm. sure you've heard about that this summer. Absolutely. And that one's tough because it is just so accessible. There is very little barrier to entry. And I think that makes people Hop
0: on it with a lighthearted attitude. People that aren't climbers, people that are just hikers, like, oh, I bet I can get up that. And that circles into the more. And this part's gonna, this part's gonna seem a a bit extreme to some people, especially in our culture. You know, within Stoic philosophy, it's a normal part of life to dwell on the worst things that can happen, to dwell on mortality. And even when I was a road cyclist training for Ironman, I would ride past roadkill on the side of the road, a dead animal. And I would go, that could be me. Yeah. Next car that comes around the corner, a pile of carbon atoms that used to be Jason, but has life no more. Mm. And I would let myself dwell on that. I wouldn't go, oh, push that out of my mind. That won't happen to me. Bad things won't happen, that won't happen. I wouldn't create a magic magic land. I would go, okay, that could be me today on this ride. Do I still love what I'm doing enough? Do I still believe in what I'm pursuing? Is this an important enough part of who I believe I am that I still want to make this decision to continue writing. Mm. And I approach soloing in the same way. Like, things could go horribly, horribly, painfully wrong. Even worse than death, I could be horribly maimed for the rest of my life and live in agony and dysfunction because I'm making this choice. Do I care so much about the purity and mastery of this pursuit and what it means to me as a person in my development is it such an important thing that even in the light of dwelling on how painful and terrifying that would be to slide down this rock face and have my bones broken and my body broken, do I still care so much about it in the light of that to still choose to do it? And that's a very different decision making than, well, my friends are going, I guess, um, right. nothing bad will happen, I'm going to go. Right. One of them, it's like you're truly sitting with the weight of the decision you're making. And in the other, you're creating a magic, magic land where bad things don't happen. And while you're still taking risk in either place, someone might be like, well, you're still, both people are taking the same risk. It's like, yeah, but if the person who makes that decision from a place of magic, magic lands, because my friends are doing it, falls and has that bad thing happen, you can bet their final moments are lived out in complete regret. Yeah. And I think... Weighing the consequences and still truly wanting to pursue the thing changes it to where at least, you know, my friends, if I passed away in the mountains tomorrow, would be like, yeah, he knew what he was doing and he chose it anyways yeah and he died doing what he loved. Right. And to actually know that that's real and not just a made up balm that they can put on the feelings of having lost me. It's like, no, he really weighed this decision and he chose to be up there anyways. And And
1: you have this thing of, I've already been that close before. mm -hmm. You have like a distinct difference from a lot of folks is that you've been at death's doorstep. You understand what those moments are like, and you still choose to live the life you do. I
0: had a friend that, you know, along those lines, I had a friend that personally knew uh, one of the gals that passed away soloing this year. Mm. And he was really disrupted by it. It really bugged him because he's another passionate Person in the mountains. He pursues this uh, this ongoing story of men in mountains. Like it's something that animates his life, that causes him to make himself into a better man and to pursue bigger, more difficult things. Right. He gets meaning out of this, but he was left in this place of deeply struggling. Like, should I be pursuing this? Should I be influencing others to pursue this? Is this something I should have as a part of my life still? Is this like the writing on the wall that I need to hang up the shoes on this? Um, and. You know, one of the things I brought up in our conversation is it's like, man, the closest I've ever come to dying, I was on my way to a meeting, a meeting I really wasn't that interested in being at. Mm. And that meeting went on without me, and it made no difference. Mm. And there are things we can die for in this life so suddenly and so disruptedly, and disruptively, and so unexpectedly that mean nothing right that don't matter to us or anyone else Mm. that is it's completely irrelevant to anyone if we die while doing it yeah and those moments could come any second and so to at least be pursuing something that brings you passion that lights you on fire right and that's an expression of love in my book right passion is the love we have for what we do yeah and it's like that's that's the only antidote to all of the suffering in life is is the love we can experience that that we experience it to such a degree that it makes it worth it and so if you're not if you're you know it's almost like i'm taking the counter argument to myself right now my earlier statement it's like if you're living in a way that you're throttling off at anything that causes any risk um even though it would bring you a massive amount of pleasure well of course you're going to spiral with you know depression if, of course you're going to feel disappointed when you look at yourself in the mirror. If you're not leaning into anything, you're not leaning into any fear, any risk, any pain, any suffering to go towards something that lights you up and makes Mm. you feel alive, that feels like it's beckoning you and calling you out, um, yeah, that's not a way to live. And, you know, death's going to come knocking anyways. Pain and suffering is going to come knocking anyways. So you might as well be in pursuit of something you care enough about that it makes it worth it. So you know, if you want the counter argument to to the argument I just gave, it's not really counter. I think the two fit together, right? They're two cogs in a a decision-making machine where you're willing to fully weigh the consequences of a a life choice, what you're giving up, what you could be losing, the risks you're going to take. But then you also come to know yourself well enough that you're like, "Mm, when I look at myself in the mirror, this Mm. is important enough. That if I don't lean into that risk, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna be able to look that person in the mirror and be proud of them. And I've definitely guided my life along those lines of. I want to make eight year old me stoked with who I became, and I want eighty year old me to be proud of how I spent the time. I want to be able to look at myself in the mirror, and be proud that I leaned into being, the best I could possibly be. And I mean, even back as a high schooler, I was still quite religious at that time, having been brought up in a really conservative upbringing. And even at that age, the way I conceptualized like the end of life and what I wanted to ask God first was how close did I get? Mm. Meaning how close did I get to like being the very best, becoming all Jason Hardrath could have become. Um, and I mean, that's, that's really sort of the, the, the antidote, antidote to all of the difficult things we're going to face regardless in life, you know. I I've, I've lost friends in the mountains too. Um eventually our families get old, eventually our friends get old. We go through that stage of life where we we face all that. Um it's coming. So, I mean, you got to live for something.
1: Yeah. I think that's a very interesting concept of how close that I get. You know, like I don't know if there is any answer out there or if you ever get to get to know about it, but it's a fun concept to think about. And certainly with like efforts like this, you can think, you know, even in efforts you fail and you're like, man, how close was I to actually becoming like what I could have been in that moment? Was there, was there a moment in this effort where you were like, fuck, dude, I don't know. Like, I might have to hang this up. Like maybe it's just not going to work out.
0: Um, people always ask that like did you ever want to quit did you ever want to give up question and i think i've been around i've been around this block so many times and i've i've wired in my in, own inner reflections and you know estimation of like what is a life well lived what is a value um you know and then the personal stuff of like what lights me on fire what is my passion like all these different things you know looking at my own dispositions looking at society as a whole and how humans affect other humans it's like answering that question of like, what is a valuable life? Um, to me, I do to teach. I become so that I can impact and inspire. I, I chase my own dreams and goal and, and take, take high aims in my life so that I can lift others up. Mm. And because of that, I know that when I embrace a project like the Rockies Grand Slam, You know, even just like thinking about what I'm going to have to hand my students at the tail end of it. The whole point of the thing is to come away with a lesson of just how much we can put ourselves together as a human being to carry through the dark moments and the hard moments. And yeah, in Montana, when I first started off, I had to open with this 28 hour, 20, almost 29 hour push Because storms are on the way. The monsoonal storms are on their way. And like I said, Montana is a very committing backcountry push um, with few bailouts. And so it's like, all right, here we go. Like, this is going to be full on. I know the storms are on their way. I need to move efficiently. Like, I'm going to need to dig deep, even though I'm already exhausted. I'm at the end of this project. Um, I'm 95 peaks deep. You know, it's like, I've been doing this for a minute now. Um, It's like, I'm going to have to lean in and, like, let's go. And, immediately in the push within like the first 10 hours uh, for some reason i chose to put on a fresh set of shoes mm-hmm. uh, just thinking like oh the extra lugs and the, the grip the fresh rubber will be nice and within the first 10 hours the bottoms of my feet are raw the tips of my toes all, all of the pads are just down to raw red skin mm-hmm. um, just because they weren't ventilating well fresh out of the box so now here i am pushing through darkness Um, because I kind of just opened as soon as the afternoon storms passed and so basically was going to push all night the very first night. Um, Here I am in darkness, every step is now excruciating and I'm trying to race these storms that are coming and all the anxieties and all the doubts start pouring in, all the self-judgment starts pouring in and Every step is painful, and I'm trying to trying to focus on just keep moving forward. And my mind is going, you're not going to beat the storms. Like, running these calculations, like, you're going to get down to five peaks to go, and then you're going to have to bail multiple not miles, 16 miles out, just to sit and wait and add four days to wait for the storms to pass because you're not going to move fast enough. Mm. And just, like, sitting with those emotions and sitting, you know, with – existential questionings too because it's right once it starts to pile on your mind just wants to like come unglued like what's the value of this anyways and what uh you know what is like you know when you return to your normal life what what is it going to matter and like those questions want to come pouring in and answering some of those questions but then just like partway through this right at first anytime this starts to happen when you're just in so much pain that like literally every step takes a concerted effort to not want to like yell or cry. Yeah. And, you know, the internal things and the doubts start coming in and the anxiety starts coming in. And, you know, I'd, I'd already been sort of, I had a little bit of PTSD cause I'd gotten stormed uh, off of a peak in Colorado with electrical storms to the degree that it's like the electrical buzz was in the hood of my um, rain layer. Like Oof. I was like, Oh, I'm, I am, I'm the point right now. Charged up. I'm charged up. Like I can hear the static electricity buzzing through me and feel it. Um, and then again, I had to duck uh, under a storm in Wyoming as well. It wasn't nearly as bad, nearly as intense, but already had a couple of experiences like, man, I'm gonna have to push into the storms and like endure another experience like that. Yeah. Um, So at first I was just like awash in it, right? Like lost in these negative emotions, lost in these doubts, lost in these anxieties. And then eventually I reached this place where I could kind of observe almost myself, right? Like get get outside of yourself and like see what you're experiencing and the emotions you're having. And just was able to be like, yeah, okay. If I need to feel these things for the next five days, if this is how it's gonna be, I'm willing to sit with these feelings. Mm. I'm willing to make space for these feelings and sit with them and just let them be for however long they wanna stay. And you know, the, the moment you make space to just feel whatever you're gonna feel and you're, you're like, okay, I'll abide this suddenly it's no longer what you're lost inside of, right? Like you're now the bigger thing. Like you think about the mental flip there. It's like, I, I'm big enough that I can hold all that I can feel. Yeah. Um, and I can sit with all that I can feel and it, it flips the perspective and it's like, it still sucked, right? Like my every step still hurt and I still was having these doubts and anxieties flowing in and these, you know, wanting to question the, you know, down to questioning the value of my life, right? A full on existential crisis. Um, And just being willing to sit with that and go okay if this is part of the journey this is what i signed up for like this is why i'm here right now is why i'm here not not all the fun stuff not the glory not the happiness not the sunset or sunrise summits right here right now this is what i this is why i'm here Mm -hmm. this is what i signed up for and i think so often i hear you know even high-level athletes talk about training and talk about their pursuits as if Anytime something's going wrong, they're just waiting to get out of it. Like, oh, I can't wait till we're having burgers and beers. Like, I can't wait till this is over. It's like, no, this is part of the experience you came out for. Like, if you're just wishing it's over, the moment those harder parts come up and the parts where you have to, like, face yourself and find out what's inside of you, if you're wanting out the moment those come up, then you never really wanted the experience in the first place in the real sense. Right. It's back to that magic, magic land. That's the term I like to use for these these things we create in our head, where like somebody looks at me and says, "Oh, I wish I could climb mountains like you." It's like, really? Did you want to skip Dude. all those parties and all that fun stuff you did and the video games you played to train and run and rehearse and practice? Is that really what you want, or do you want the result of all the hours you want I the put glory. in? The glory. You want the. You don't glory want to get hailed
1: suffering? on. You don't want to get electrocuted. You want to feel accomplished. Is yep. what you want.
0: Yep. And so. Just like in that moment, as I'm still in it, just going like, yeah, this is why you're here. This is why you're here. And this is what you're gonna walk away with wisdom and be able to look at yourself in the mirror and go, I carried a tremendous burden. Mm -hmm. Everything was saying it would have been just fine to drop out right then and there. And nobody would have batted an eyelash, but I'm gonna keep moving forward and I'm gonna keep pushing toward, well, what if I still beat the storms? And I'm gonna go really find out, I'm gonna go really find out whether I can't beat the storms, this doubt in my mind. And maybe so be it. Maybe I, I do actually get five peaks to go, stormed off the ridge, go running out of the back country. And, and that's what happens And I wait those four days to come back in and clean up five peaks out of 122. Um, so be it. I want to be the kind of man that walks until that point. Because that's what I'm going to be able to sit with being proud and satisfied that I I leaned in and found out Mm -hmm. 10 years, 20 years, 30 years down the road when I look myself in the mirror. And I think that's that's the why behind the why, right? Like we want to find that we can trust ourselves to be the kind of person that when everything's not pointing our way we still show up when, when adversity and the storm screams into our face, we stand and we go, do your worst. I'll be here. And man, I think there's so much value in being able to carry the pain and the suffering through successfully to that end point. Yeah. Right. I wept at the finish line of this. I have, I have no problem saying I wept at the finish line of this. Because what I did is I took all these points of suffering, showing up sick because my students got me sick as I left school, but I had a permit for Calabria that said, you have to climb on this day, otherwise the whole project's off. Yeah. So it's like, cool, got to show up and start the project sick and then have to keep the wheels turning because the clock runs no matter what. You can't just like, oh, well, now that I started, I'm going to take a day off. It's like, well, that day counts. Clock's running. Right. Um, so started off sick immediately for the first time ever, Got altitude sick while uh, only at 14,000 feet, which had never happened to me before. I've gotten it before overseas at 20,000 feet and 18,000 feet and stuff like that. High altitude pulmonary edema where the fluid builds up in your lungs and you cough up like this clearish pinkish fluid. Um, I've gotten it before at higher elevations, but never at this. So for the first time ever now, here I am. And any time I hit that 14,000, 13,500 mark, I start coughing. Like, yeah oh, this the, is fun
1: the only way to like combat hape is go down by going down and, and you're so not kept, going down kept, you're well, gonna keep going up
0: I kept riding the line right because I'd go up and I'd suffer for a few hours up high whether it was a link up or maybe it would just be for a little while and then I'd get back down low enough and it would kind of go away oh. and then right back up and trigger it again right. back down Right. so back probably up, the exact
1: opposite of what someone will oh, yeah, tell totally you to do. totally not recommended yeah. like
0: don't do that um, <laughs> so start I'm battling that for like two weeks
1: um, I remember seeing that and being like, "Oh, here we go." Here we go. So yeah, like a lot of people it. like
0: had written me off at that point, like, "Oh, there's no way, like, this will just get worse and he'll be done."
1: A lot of people, that's what ends their
0: trip. Like, yeah, absolutely. That high
1: altitude pulmonary pulmonary edema. Well, it and- kills people. I mean, it's yeah. one. Of,
0: it's more. It's more serious than haste, which is the cerebral edema where you get the really bad headaches. Mm. Um, like as far as like lethality, mm-hmm. um, so. Yeah. I faced that and kind of battled and kept like doing the whole like, well, when I get low, at least I'm sleeping low for all of Colorado. And maybe, maybe by the time I finish all of Colorado, my body will have adapted enough Mm. that it goes away. And then in Wyoming, I'm only going up to 13,000 feet. And it seems to be, it gets triggered the most when I'm decently above 13. So maybe this will all work out, right? Kept faith, kept moving forward. Yeah. looked into the storm and said, here I come. Um, and then had my feet melt for the first time while I was here in Colorado. So raw feet, um, again, like did the whole new shoes thing. You think I would have learned from it and not done it in Montana? But I was tired and sleep deprived, and my buddy went, "Well, why don't you just put on the fresh set of shoes they sent you?" And I was like, "Oh, that makes sense." Instead of trying to pick which Thrash pair of shoes to like trust for a five day push in the backcountry, and so I was just like, "Yeah, I'll just put on the new pair." Mm. Um, so you know, made a big mistake there. But anyways, yeah, uh, had a crew member drop out uh he was supposed to help me for like three and a half weeks and 30 hours in he's like dude i'm out and so that was a huge blow what was that about scramble he just like it was too intense for him Mm, he just like like, hadn't trained much well he hadn't he wasn't ready the thing he voiced is he didn't realize that he was gonna feel so involved and be worried about like you know my well-being Right? like He hadn't been in a lot of these circumstances before where someone's pushing themselves to their limits and is mm. kind of coming down and being a bit thrashed and needs some help, like getting food in and getting protein shake in, right? Like patching up some wounds or whatever. And I think it was just like too intense for him. Just a like lot. He'd, he'd had a comfortable life and suddenly being thrown into the stuff where it's like tape wounds and go back to war. Yeah, It was it was too much for him. And so he's like, yeah, this is more than I bargained for. Mm -hmm. I, I'm not ready for this. I shouldn't have committed to this many, this many days, you know, this many weeks and, you know, just basically bailed on me. Um, and so I had to scramble like reaching out and like contacting every witch person all over again to try to find replacements so that I wouldn't have to, you know, drive myself and go into the, the very thing we talked about earlier that would make the project more dangerous and a lot harder and slower. Um, and, So that happened. Then, let's see, shortly after that, uh, the back axle of my van got ripped loose and it had to go into the shop to get remounted. Um, That was as we went into Wyoming. Um, I think it was on the final four by four road of Colorado. And then we actually drove it with the axle misaligned, kind of going like, huh, something feels weird, but can't quite tell what it is am i
1: dizzy there. or is this thing moving <laughs> <laughs> like,
0: yeah it drove a little weird
1: because you're probably tired as hell by that point anyways oh yeah, anyways. You oh, can't yeah really i'm like tell. trying to sleep
0: in the back and they're they're the ones driving um so van broke down then actually i mentioned how serious the winds wind river range push was and w- another crew member ends up bailing out like right at the crucial point where it's like this is the make or break like we can either continue on Mm. and like knock out the rest of these peaks and not have to do that 34 round trip carry camp out carry stuff back in try again um or we have to do that because you're bailing out and the dude's like i just can't be in here anymore i can't handle like again it was anticipated fear it was like i'm worried about bears and i miss my girlfriend and like all of these emotions and not being able to sit with those emotions and and just stay there till the job was done till the mission was completed it was like no i need to bail down it's like you realize what a big problem this creates like how much this affects the team that you're not able to pull this together he's like yep but i gotta go i can't do this another day and it's like you know on the one hand it's like being understanding of mental health and on the other hand it's like like the point of the whole project that i said it's like asking yourself the question like can i stand up to adversity can i be everything i need to be when the world says hey you're gonna struggle down to your very core with this situation. Will you keep moving forward or will you retreat? Um, so it's like you know, the twofold, right? Where it's like, man, I want to be understanding of this person not being ready for this level of thing, mm-hmm. but also like, oh man, like what a what a wallop to take. So it's like, yeah, it ended up doing that whole hike out and hike back in um, in the middle of the wind's push. It's such a
1: massive um, difference that crew could make. You know, I think. I don't know, maybe more of my bigger adventures have been solo. So I don't, you know, I always think, wow, it'd be nice to have somebody with me. But at the other side of that coin is it has to be the right person. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like for you, you had the exact right person at some points. And then at other points, maybe someone who just wasn't ready.
0: Wasn't ready. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And that's not any knock on them. Like it's, the shit's, yeah, it's, it's, shit's it's, hard.
0: Yeah, shit's hard. It's yeah. real. Um, I mean, sitting with anticipated fear is one of the hardest things we can do and to to like sit with it and be present with it and train ourselves to be like this is in my head like that's a process that takes a lot of time i spent a lot of years learning to walk that line for myself Mm. and it's like those fears still come up for me it's just i've learned to navigate them and walk through them and go okay how realistic is this how how present is this, right? Like, even as the storms were coming, there's a massive amount of anticipated fear. But I'm like, sure. this is the anticipated fear. I'm not seeing clouds in the sky right now. Right. This is all in my mind. Like, I can keep acting in accordance with the fact that the skies are clear. And then when things start to move in, I can act in accordance with the real risk that's presenting right. itself. This is based um, on
1: a five day forecast. This isn't based on what I'm seeing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And
0: being present with the difference between those two. Right. You, know, you know, realizing like I'm in bear country and there's a risk of bears, but that doesn't mean around every corner I need to be scared. Yeah. Um, Did you
1: carry bear protection or no?
0: I had bear spray with me on a few of the, on like Frank's peak, cause it's like a super high bear density area in Wyoming. Um, and then one or two others that I'm spacing on the name of, but in areas where it was like, well, bears are here, but it's, you know, the density and especially like with the Montana push where it's like, I had a short bit of time where I was kind of down in the country they would be in. And then I was up so high that it's like the probability super low that I'm going to cross them. And that if I do cross them, they're going to be in any way interested in staying up at that elevation is like really low yeah that's so. probably something
1: that people don't realize they think bears are just like freely wandering about to the top of the mountains but it's like they're not hanging out up there
0: no yeah no. They're, they're they're not hanging out up high for very long unless it's like a particular mi- migratory path or something like that
1: so well i guess part of that is you have to weigh that consequence right because everyone's like why wouldn't you bring a, a gun and all the bear spray and all that stuff and you're like well then i have to carry it Yep, and people probably don't realize like yeah. just a couple pounds when you're making that kind of push is a huge deal Yeah,
0: especially when you're scrambling fourth or fifth class terrain at random points right the Beartooth, there were multiple points i had to make fourth and fifth class moves and i knew they were low enough that i was comfortable to not bring a rope for that section like well within my ability level and i talked extensively with the people who'd done it before who kind of knew me and my skill set and they're like yeah you don't need like Everything inside me says, you don't need to worry about this based on what I've seen you do and things we've done together. And so from that, I could make the decision like, oh, this is something I can enter into. And everything about it says I'm going to feel totally fine. Well, I'm going to have to put my head in right and focus. It's a real serious situation, but I'm going to manage the situation well and efficiently. Mm -hmm. Um, But Yeah throw an extra five pounds on your back, an extra three pounds on your back, and suddenly those moves, especially if there's loose rock, low rock quality, where you're questioning the holds and you're tapping around to make sure you choose the right sequence that touches only solid rock, it's like suddenly that gets a lot harder if you're in you're lifting that weight for all those steps and all those miles. In so, the middle of the night. Yeah, in the middle of the night. And your
1: hands are cold. And there's lightning. You know, like and your feet on, are raw. It's yeah. just like when you're out there, man, there's so many things that, I mean – you just don't think of when you're at home on your couch you're just like oh I could probably do that that looks fun and then you like get there and the reality is just oh so different and I think it shows on your journey like people were trying to hang with you while you're two three four weeks into this and like it becomes too much for somebody that's fresh like that's just a testament to you as a human being that you were able to power through that as tired as you were
0: I I appreciate you saying that it was this one you know I've thought about this a bit because people ask the question, like, oh, you know, which which list was harder, the the Bolgers or the uh, Rocky Mountain Grand Slam? And it's like, well, another mountaineer said this to me who'd actually done both. He'd climbed the Bolgers much slower than I did, but he'd climbed all of them. Is the Bolgers Washington? The Bulgers is Washington's hundred highest, the historic list there, yeah. Um, so Washington's hundred tallest or or here in the Rockies. And he said it at the time, and then you look at the two times I produced on each of these, and it lines up almost perfectly with his math. He said, even though it's 20 fewer peaks, the Washington Bulgers are about 20% harder than the Rocky Mountain Grand Slam with like how involved the terrain is and how difficult, how slow moving, um, how much technical terrain. And sure enough, my record on the Bulgers is 50 days, and my record here is just under 40 days. And so it's like, well, that's 20%. Um, What does that look like to the previous time that was set for the Grand Slam? uh, Previous time on the Grand Slam was 60 days. Holy shit, you smashed it. Yeah, I I shaved a minute or two off.
1: (laughs) Oh my God, (laughs) it wasn't even close. I thought it was going to be like a couple days difference. What is that? You did it in 39?
0: Yeah, 39 days, 23 hours, 44 minutes. So 16 minutes, managed to... And it's funny how that happens, right? Be out there pushing for over a month and then you find yourself racing a clock because your brain goes, well, it sounds really cool to have it read 39 days in the front. Sub and then 40. You put yourself, just put yourself through the ringer all over again. Yeah. And that's what it was like. Oh man, on those raw feet, just like running those final miles out to race in under the, under the 40 day mark was just excruciating. But it's like, I want it.
1: What was the feeling like when you come across to that final trailhead and you get back and it's over?
0: I mean, I won't lie. There's definitely a sense of relief as a part of it that, you know, especially with how much pain every step involved in this one and all the things that went wrong and all the struggles I faced, like to have pulled it all together. Right. And I think this is what I was starting toward earlier, like having so often in life suffering is just disjointed, seemingly meaningless moments in our life. And like for people that don't point themselves at a passion, point themselves at something that like captures them and set goals that they feel are meaningful. Like I feel like they miss out on the chance for suffering and discomfort in life to be anything except disjointed, meaningless things that happen to you. Mm. But because I took on this project that's something I love and you know as a, you know, a PE teacher it's something that serves this greater mission I have in life to impact young people and then in situations like this I get a chance to impact other athletes and other people who are interested in this niche world of getting out into the outdoors which shouldn't be such a niche it should be more widespread for sure um, but the the basic gist that happens what I notice happens in in how we think about it right suddenly you know, you think about me being sick because my students got me sick. That could be a completely meaningless random data point. Like we get sick all the time. But because I carried this whole project through, it's now this burden that I bore through, added up with all these other burdens and setbacks and pains and sufferings that were a part of the meaning that I felt Mm. at the finish line. What I knew I carried on my way to produce... To manifest to actualize a dream and it's like suddenly they weren't just meaningless right now they're all a part of this cohesive month-long story of my life and that story's worth it right and that's also a part of what i felt at the finish line like everything got to be brought together Mm. to this culmination of it all being worth it like i i i I didn't give up, I didn't turn around with the storms, I didn't give up when I ended up with HAPE, I didn't give up when the crew members bailed on me. I kept moving forward, I kept finding a way for it, I kept finding a mental solution and then an external solution to keep the project in motion. And because I was willing to do that over and over and over again, I got to have that finish line moment where it's like the whole thing came together. This thing that's been on my mind for two years, Mm -hmm. instead of still just being a dream or being a failed endeavor, gets to be something I went out and I did. I carried it through start to finish. And that's not nothing. Like, to be able to have that kind of cohesion and meaning with the story of your life and then to know, I think it kind of changes us, right? It changes our whole mental approach. If we've had experiences like that, we've gone and and taken ourselves through this practice of embracing discomfort intentionally toward a goal. Um, it, It changes how we know we can approach the pain and the suffering and the difficult, difficulty and the setback in life and just how much meaning those things can have, right? Yeah. It's like when I said earlier, like, I made space for the suffering to sit with it. Like, this is what I signed up for. In my mind, pain and suffering and discomfort isn't what's the opposite of the glory and the happy moments and the fun moments the bright sunshiny moments what's the opposite of all of feeling is to not feel and back during college i had what i can look back now and see were bouts of manic depression where suddenly a switch would seemingly flip and i couldn't get myself out of bed i wouldn't feed myself i couldn't motivate myself to even go do what i loved which at the time was like running for the college team like i wouldn't you know wouldn't matter what friends were doing wouldn't matter what they were serving at the cafeteria like i would lay there for an entire 24-hour period sometimes, miss class, miss everything, unable to just, like, pull myself out from under the heater in my dorm room. And at the time, I was, like, really harsh on myself, like, why the hell can't I just pull myself together and get this done? Um, but now looking back, it's like, oh, man, that was that was definitely manic depression, like, suddenly sudden outsets of just extreme uh, lethargy. And when I look back at what it was like to be inside that moment, those moments where I was experiencing that, it was basically like, being hollowed out and all the colors were turned down to grayscale, and all the emotion was bled out of everything you loved and hated. Mm-hmm. Like there was just no emotion about anything. Something it didn't there. matter what you thought about. Just imagine feeling completely nothing about it. And so, you know, we're emotional creatures. What actually creates action inside us isn't what we think about. It's how we think about it. It's what we feel as we think about it. And so to just not feel anything about anything and to just be left inert on the ground because of it it's like that to me is the icon of what's to be avoided yeah is how can we move as far away from feeling nothing apathy and indifference about our life right the, the meaningless nights where we scroll away on some social media that there are no memories being made there's nothing important happening there's no breakthroughs there's no learning we just scroll a day away um that's that's the opposite of living and to be you know to move as far away from that if you sort of imagine like this scale going away from the nothing and into the extremes of feeling anything whether that's pain or sadness or happiness joy uh, glory pride like we're meant to feel as full as we can in every direction we possibly can to experience our full scale. My, my experiment is can I feel everything Jason Hardrath was capable of feeling, right? Yeah. Along with doing everything Jason Hardrath could have been capable of doing, like that younger version of me asked, like, hey God, how close did I get, right? It's like, that's the mission, to go out and like have the fullest human experience possible. But that means embracing the part of that full human experience right. that isn't necessarily super fun to be inside of in the moment. Um, but it's only through embracing that, that you get to have the moment I had at the finish line where there's this deep sense of hard work. Well done. That's like, yeah, this was a moment where I carried near my limit, right? Like this, this is one of those things that's going to go into the equation of answering that question. Like how close did I get? It's like, Pretty well, that was close that, those moments were pretty damn close yeah those were the moments where right up to the edges um and that's pretty special yeah that's pretty special and you can't have that if you're not willing to sit with the hard moments
1: right is it too early to ask what's next
0: um i guess it's never too early to ask that it's <laughs> always it's always um what people want to know well i'm definitely not hanging up the shoes for good um, that's not going to happen, but I actually already have another ongoing project that I started up. We actually have a film coming out. Um, kind of named similar as like a next chapter to the journey to 100 film. It's going to be called journey to infinity. And it relates back to the Rainier infinity loop. Um, which is, was, it was like a breakthrough experience for me early in my sort of FKT speed record. Uh, career back in 2019 and it's just this crazy endeavor that was thought up by chad kellogg uh, a former um a late american climber that was well loved he he died before he got the chance to to do it but he thought up this dream idea of oh you climb up over rainier up one side down the other use the wonderland trail to come back around you climb back up over it again and then you come around the other side essentially drawing an infinity, infinity. In or a figure eight Um, over the top of the summit of the mountain Uh. and you get to see the mountain from every side you get to climb on both sides of the mountain you get to climb it at different times a day like you just really get this intimate experience with all these aspects of of a volcano right it's meant for a freestanding mountain doesn't work as well on a mountain range where there's lots of stuff in the way but on like a volcano where that can happen it's like this beautiful experience and when I did it It was like a breakthrough experience for me on a personal level, like as an athlete, like I'd never pushed over a hundred miles. I'd never gone over one night of sleep deprivation. And that one requires two. Um, It was more elevation gain at 44,000 feet of elevation gain than I'd ever done in a single push. It was like this massive undertaking, more glaciated terrain than I'd ever covered with, you know, crevasses. Crevasses, You could drop a bus into and be like, where'd the bus go? Um, So it was like full on adventure at that point in my mountaineering, my running, like all this stuff it just pushed my limits and I had just this transcendent like almost spiritual experience out there with myself and with the mountain and I'm like I love this endeavor I want to put it on bigger volcanoes because I already climbed Pico de Rezaba. I'd already climbed Chimborazo down in Ecuador which is over 20,000 feet and so I'd had some experience on like big volcanoes down south I'm like I want to take this idea there I want to like spread Chad Kellogg's idea but then COVID break, broke out so it was like well international travel is off the docket so I guess You know, the infinity loop projects off the docket, but, you know, now stuff is clearing up and it's like, all right, cool, let's start this. And then I discovered the volcanic seven summits list, which is just like the seven summits, right? Tallest mountain on each continent, but it's the tallest volcano on each continent. Mm. And, you know, Chad always thought like volcanoes are meant for infinity loops, infinity loops for volcanoes. It's like, what, what could there be? There really isn't any more global of an application of his crazy idea than to go and put them on the seven Each. volcanic summits. Yeah. And so it's like, I went and did Pico de Orizaba, the tallest in North America. And it's like, well, shit, I may have just kicked off a like project that'll consume years of my life to make it happen. Cause you know, Elbrus is in Russia and obviously there's all those, uh, the war, um, yeah. just to put it bluntly, small barrier. Um, so small barrier right now. There's, uh, Iran has Damavand. Um,
1: I will say the war could make for good TV. Yeah, could, no. <laughs> it could make for good TV. Uh,
0: yeah. Um, let's add some more complexity and problems to an already difficult thing. Right. It seems like I'm good at that. Um, and yeah, then obviously like Antarctica, $70,000 a person for any team member I want to bring down there. Like that's a whole different level of like marketing and funding and problem solving. Like on a teacher's salary, I can't just be like, well, I will spend $0.00 and 0 cents for an entire year and take my entire teacher pay and drop it to right. pay just for myself to go down there and I'm gonna solo the whole thing with no support in Antarctica where the weather's extreme? Sp- Doesn't sound quite possible.
1: Ask your buddy, hey man, would you be down to spend 70 grand to support me? <laughs> yeah, basically, right?
0: <laughs> right? So it's like I need to solve a lot of problems to even make this possible, which it makes it an intriguing thing. It's like, maybe this is an impossible project for me. Let's let's start something that's impossible and see if it becomes possible as I go. Mm. Um, and so yeah uh the volcanic seven summits infinity loops um is something that's on my mind and then uh, yeah definitely have a handful more mountain projects i think i i think i'm going to take a break from the month plus stuff Mm. it's it's taxing on on the body on the spirit on the mind i mean even yeah down to like a spiritual level where i went to be out on just a casual grand teton lap with some friends about 11 days after I finished this effort, which is way too soon by anybody's like recovery, you know, like forecast for how long you should take off. So I this got, this was I like deserve.
1: the, when Jack was attempting that. Yeah. This was
0: the day before Jack attempted the FKT on it and just went to do a casual lap on it. And by halfway through for the first time in like ever, I kind of was in a place where I almost didn't want to be there. Uh, Like I was just so burned out and so tired and struggling to keep up with their pace and like being the slow person in a group of strong people never feels good. And like normally I'd be one of the fast ones. And it's just like all these different things to where it was like really difficult to enjoy the experience. And I did still distinctly enjoy portions of it, like the scramble on the Owen Spalding route and all that. But it was like, man, I don't want to be in a place where the thing I love most becomes something I don't want to do. And, Like, I mean, both the Bulgers, especially the Bulgers, but also the Rocky Mountain Grand Slam, like, had grabbed me in such a way that it's like, I knew I wanted to do them. And there's just nothing that's 40 days plus, 30 days plus that has me like that. So it's like, maybe that's, maybe that chapter's done, or maybe it'll take a year or two to find another project of that scale. Um, but I certainly have stuff that's in the, you know, day long to 10 day long range that it's like, yeah, those are things to aim at for sure. Um... One of which that really has spoken to me that I want to take a crack at this fall if, they, if all the roads don't wash out with the flooding um, is the Badwater to Whitney duathlon, mm. um, which takes the Badwater 135 course that's normally run during that ultra marathon. You bike that because it's all highway and then you switch, switch out and put on the running shoes and you run up the Mountaineers route on Mount Whitney. So you go from the lowest point in the United States to the highest point in the 48 the you know, contiguous United States. Um, and it's the fastest human-powered time between the two, mm-hmm. um, and that one has really spoken to me with the triathlon background, like having loved the bike and been good at it. Um, What's it, what is that fully supported? Um, yeah, I'd probably do it supported because
1: yeah. the Mountaineers route's pretty. It's pretty full on, right? Yeah, it's
0: got it's got some fourth class, definite definite third fourth class on oh, it. Oh, I was thinking I think there goes, was fifth it class. It doesn't, it doesn't quite go fifth. Well. If you take the most direct line to be f- efficient, there's a couple fifth moves that you can take. Gotcha. Um,
1: for some reason, I was thinking that was more technical.
0: Well, uh, right next to it, there's the um, East Buttress, and that's 5.7, so okay. maybe you were thinking of that that's, route.
1: That's what I'm thinking of. So,
0: yeah, yeah, that one has spoken to me for a while, so I wanna, I wanna make an attempt on that unless it's just another heinous flooding year in the fall, which it's sort of starting to look like it might be, especially with all the snowfall and if the rain keeps coming. Um, so I'm crossing my fingers that I at least get a chance to try that cool this year because that sweet. one's uh that one's been calling me for a while um, yeah yeah so I've got some got some efforts in that like couple. one day two day range um, that are still still calling me out
1: yeah well when you uh, when you attempt that you'll have to come back and and talk to us about it
0: Oh I'd be stoked too
1: well I uh, I appreciate you coming out and honestly that was just a fucking crazy story dude like (laughs) i'm stoked to see you know all the things that you end up doing in the future and uh yeah just mad respect for for everything you're doing
0: thanks for having me on it's been a pleasure to be here
1: all right see you next time guys stay wild